Soraya. Hey, Jeff. What do you got there? I have a book. What do you have there? I've got a book too. Oh, Jeff, just tell me about it when it's over. <laughs> yeah, so that's the name of this book, Tell Me When It's Over. And I think this, I was going to say this is our first author that we're speaking to, but that's not necessarily true because we've had Pat Thomas on the show, but yeah. typically we're speaking to musicians. But today we're speaking to, I don't know if it's he's technically the author or he's credited as the editor. Yeah, so he's definitely the editor. So who is this guy? Clive Jones. Clive Jones, yeah. So the editor of this book, Tell Me When It's Over. Um, Notes I'll, from the Paisley Underground. So yeah. we're speaking to Clive today. And I'm excited about this because we've had calls to Australia when we spoke to David Faulkner from Hoodoo Gurus. Um, our buddy Chris Kakavez lives in Germany, so we've had calls to Germany. But today, first call to... The motherland. The UK. England. The, or the origin place. But no, it's our first call to the UK. And uh, I'm glad we, we get to talk with Clive uh, about this book. Yeah. That, uh, a number of us have, have read and uh, talk about our favorite bands. So let's say we get started. Hi, this is Soraya. And this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agarubiar. Let's get groovy. All right. Connecting to England. Jolly old England. Well, good evening, Mr. Jones. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing this evening? Very well, thank you. Hi, Soraya. Hello. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm looking out my window. The sun is shining brightly. It's uh, the middle of the day here. And uh, to you, good sir, it's evening, correct? Good evening. Seven o'clock here. Yeah, just, just had something to eat. Yeah. <laughs> but see, look at that beautiful backdrop that... Clive has that just it speaks volumes to me well I have quite a long uh, room here and I've got one wall that's full of my records and CDs which is uh, so they're all at hand which is nice that's the only way it should be readily yeah. accessible readily. Yeah. Well, uh, we were, yeah please go ahead well I was gonna say we're very excited to have you on the show obviously you're a music fan like us um, yeah your background shows that but yeah. we wanted to bring you on to talk about this book that you edited. Um, right. And I noticed that you've written or been a part of several books, mostly about British and Israeli history. Is that correct? No, no, no. That's not me. That must be somebody else. I was wondering about that, too, because you never know. Yeah. And I would imagine that Clive Jones is a relatively common name. It but is. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's, a, I, there's a few of us about. Okay. So yeah. somebody stole your name and wrote a bunch of British hi history. So that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we want to talk about this book, right, Soraya? Yes. <laughs> and uh, Clive, again, thank you for joining us and our listeners mm. to talk about this book that I think a number of us have in our collection and yep. read through it. And of course, you know, it addresses a lot of our favorite bands, but it also kind of expands the definition of uh, what Paisley Underground is or what bands were part of it. So before yeah. we talk about the specifics of the book, could you please share with our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I've always been interested in pop music uh, right from when I was young. Um, I, I, you know, I like bands like the Beatles. I mean, who, who doesn't like the Beatles? Um, but I became more interested in music when I was at school about the age of 13, 14, um, what you tend to find is uh, people I've become interested in sport or they become interested in music and I went the music route and uh, obviously you get influenced by school friends people that you're friendly with at school and looking back um, people who had elder brothers and sisters they they pass their tastes on to their siblings and you pick up on them so in a, in a way, it's quite random what you actually pick up on when you're at school. 
And it so happened that the, the bands I picked up on were um, bands like Pink Floyd, particularly Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. Um, I became interested in the uh, Canterbury scene, um, bands like Soft Machine, Caravan, Kevin Ayres. Um, so a lot of the British usual um, bands of the era. Um, we used to call it underground music then or progressive rock. Mm -hmm. So all the popular bands like Yes, for example, or Genesis, I was interested in them. Um, so started off mainly with the British music scene. Uh, but then I had a friend in particular that I met who was really into the American West Coast rock scene. So the San Francisco scene of the, the 60s, which um, bands like Quicksilver Messenger Service, Jefferson Airplane, but primarily the Grateful Dead. So the Grateful Dead fairly quickly became my favorite band. Um, so it was basically psychedelic music, also the other West Coast bands, the Los Angeles scene, bands like The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, or, you know, the more kind of poppy scene that's going on in Los Angeles in the 60s. Um, and also Captain Beefheart was quite an early favourite of mine. Wow. It so happened that um, around the time I was becoming interested in music, he was coming over and playing here a few times. So I had the opportunity to see Beefheart. Wow. So I became a, a big fan of his. Um, and then in 1974, I got the opportunity to see the Grateful Dead in London. They came over um, and I divide the Grateful Dead's career into two parts. They had a, an era uh, before they, um, they took a break in 1975. And I felt when they came back after that, they were never quite as good. Mm. So I feel very fortunate to have seen them in that first era when they were really great, I thought. Nice. So that was my sort of taste in the 70s. And of course, in the mid to late 70s, you had the punk scene came, came along. And um, I became interested in that. Um, at the time, I was living in Stoke-on-Trent, which is not far from Manchester. Okay. So there was quite a big punk scene in Manchester. And I could go to Manchester and see various bands. I'm thinking of people like the Buzzcocks, Magazine, uh, Joy Division, uh, The Fall. I was a big fan of The Fall. So as well as the, the 60s bands, um, I had this interest in punk in the 70s. Um, so when the sort of 80s came around, um, I actually sort of found there weren't really new bands coming along that were grabbing my interest in quite the same way. Um, in England, there was this kind of new romantic scene uh, which wasn't really to my taste. Uh, in America, you seem to have these sort of heavy metal, big hair bands, which weren't my thing at all. And you had bands like the Smiths here, which were really popular, and I could never really get them. So um, by the time the sort of 80s came around, I found myself falling out of love with mainstream rock music, I thought. So I was kind of looking around for something, something else. Um, I was getting into folk music quite a, a bit. Um, in England, there was a very big folk boom in the 60s. And in the 70s, there was a big folk rock boom. But that kind of passed me by at the time. But in the 80s, I was catching up on that, getting into folk music in a big way. Um, but I was kind of looking for something else to come along and excite me again. And it so happened that um, I was uh, a member of um, CND, which was a campaign for nuclear disarmament. Mm -hmm. And I was a member of a local branch here. And in 1985, Easter 1985, there was a big demonstration, anti-nuclear demonstration up in a town called Barrow in the north of England. Okay. And um, the, the local group were going up on in a bus. So it was a very long bus journey to get there. And I got on the bus and I had a Sony Walkman on and I was listening to The Grateful Dead. And across the aisle on the bus was a guy who I'd seen before, but I'd never really spoken to him. And he asked me what I was listening to. And I said, well, it's The Grateful Dead, not expecting him to know who The Grateful Dead were. But not only did he know who The Grateful Dead were, he actually had all the records just like me. Wow. 
So this turned out to be a guy called Paul Ricketts. And from that time, I became friends with him. And he lived, I lived in a place called Chippenham and he lived in a place called Carn, which was the next town along from me in Wiltshire. So um, I started sort of visiting him and um, looking at all the, all the records he had and uh, borrowing stuff off him. And he had two friends, one of whom was called Steve Lines and the other was called Henry Race. So I became friendly with them. So I sort of joined a group of people there. And it so happened that the thing they were primarily into at the time was the Paisley Underground, which I wasn't really aware of. Okay. Um, so they had a lot of records by the Paisley Underground bands and they subscribed to a magazine called Bucketful of Brains, yes. which is produced here in England. Uh, which was edited by a guy called Nigel Cross, who uh, at the time I didn't know, but who subsequently became a friend of mine. Oh. And so um, I quickly subscribed to that magazine and um, I sort of devoured each issue as it came out. And I quickly acquired as many of the records as I could. So I fell in love with the bands in, in a big way. Um, I, you know, I liked the music. I could see that they were very influenced by psychedelic music, uh, perhaps more Los Angeles and San Francisco, but psychedelic music nevertheless. But they also had, uh, they took the energy from the punk bands and applied that to music as well. So they came up with this synthesis of music that really appealed to me. Um, I also liked the idea of, of a, um, a music scene as well. Um, when I'd become interested in the San Francisco bands or the Canterbury bands, you, you tend to get into one band and then you look for connections that go off and you kind of follow them and you get interested in other bands. Right. So they're all related. And I thought the, the, the Paisley Underground bands had that aspect to them. Um, they all seem to be connected. And I've got, you know, I had this romantic idea that, um, they all live together in Los Angeles in a big house. Um, <laughs> a bit like the monkeys in the TV show. Right. They were all friends and they, you know, they didn't have to worry about where the money was coming on. All, all they were doing was having parties and, and making music. Yeah. So um, that's basically how I got into the Paisley Underground. I, I sort of fell for the bands um, in a big way and I became pretty obsessed with them, I would say. Um, also, at, at this time, um, I became aware of somebody called Pat Thomas in America. I don't know whether you know Pat. Yes. Yeah. So I was kind of aware of him because um, he was in a band called Absolute Grey on the east coast of America. And they had a cassette on a cassette label called Acid Tapes out of England, which was run by somebody called Alan Duffy up in Manchester. But Alan Duffy um, actually stopped running that label, but he passed all his tapes on to my friend Steve Lines in Carl. Okay. So Steve was releasing the Absolute Grade cassette. So I was, I was aware of who Pat was. Um, and what uh, he had done was he produced a Dream Syndicate fanzine. And uh, it was called John Coltrane Stereo News. Mm -hmm. ah. <laughs> it only lasted for one issue. Oh. <laughs> but um, I sent away for it. Uh, I wrote to him, sent the money for the magazine, got hold of the magazine. And um, I started um, corresponding with him. And uh, I was trading tapes with quite a few people, cassette tapes at the time. So I started trading tapes back and forth with Pat. And... Um, and I found that we shared very similar tastes. I mentioned I was getting into folk music. Um, Pat was doing the same as well. He was uh, kind of discovering all the, the British folk music about people like Richard and Linda Thompson. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot in common. I mean, I could learn a lot from him about the Paisley Underground. Um, he'd obviously actually played with some of the bands on the same bill. Um, and so I was trading tapes back and forward with him. Um, and he subsequently became sort of quite a good, good friend of mine. So, um, I mean, that's how my interest in the Pacey Underground came about, really. And that's how I kind of got, got to know about them. Okay. Um, 
So I want to know who was the starter band for you? What was the first band of the underground, the Pays in the Underground that you became interested in? I think the first one to hit me was the Dream Syndicate, which, uh, you know, I really loved that, that first album. Um, it sounded to me as if there was quite a large Velvet Underground influence on, on that record. Um, and obviously, you know, they were one of my favourite bands. So I think the Dream Syndicate. Um, but I kind of quickly discovered um, the rest of the bands. Rain Parade, obviously, that, that first album, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip, which is just an incredible album, really. Um, so, yeah. And I like also, the of one band then branching off. I'd like that's that. right. Yeah, and you could you could pick up on the, the connections between them. So you think, well, if I like this band and they're related to that band over there, then yeah. they must be worth seeking out and investigating. 100%. So I'm curious, Clive. Are you a musician yourself? I'm not at all. I don't don't play anything. So no, just just a fan. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and looking back at that collection behind you, now knowing that you're a Grateful Dead fan, I bet all of that is just the Grateful Dead releases right there. <laughs> uh, there's quite a few there, quite a few, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, um, we wanted to know that, so you came to um, hear about the Paisley Underground from um, your connections with different people. What made you think, hey, I want to put together a book about this scene? Um. I think that um, as time was going on, um, I felt that the, the Paisley Underground bands weren't really getting the recognition they deserved. Um, I, the, the Paisley Underground happened over here slightly later than it did in, in the US. I think probably, you know, people in the US were thinking 82, 83 was when the Paisley Underground was started up. Well, by the time some of the bands made it over here, you were kind of talking about um 84 85 so it's slightly okay. later okay and yeah. although they got a certain amount of press over here um the journalists writing for the weekly magazines tend to be a bit fickle so they pick up on a band maybe and they'd run with them for a little while then they drop them and so i felt that the paisley underground bands weren't getting the recognition they deserved and i felt that the the scene um ought to be kind of archived. There ought to be an archive created of them because I had all these magazines with all these articles in and I thought it'd be good to put them all into one place, put them in a book and that would be a permanent resource. Um, so that was part of the motivation. Um, something else really as well is that um, I was kind of so obsessed with them that I thought if I had this project to do maybe it kind of work its way through this obsession and I could uh, get back to some sort of normalcy out of it. I love that I totally love that hmm. yeah that's great that's actually it, it defines the number of us I think <laughs> with a similar with a similar obsession and, yeah. and focus absolutely yeah. so I have to ask the question how do you define the pace in the underground because it, we have noticed through a number of forums on social media where you are geographically tends to influence how you define that so i'm asking you clive how do you define the paisley underground uh not an easy question to answer um first of all it's um it's location which is los angeles basically Se secondly it's time period 82, 83 in the USA, um, and also style of music, mainly psychedelic influence, punk influence, and also people who knew each other. So if you kind of take all those aspects, then to me, that would define the Paisley Underground. But if you look at the bands I've selected, some of them weren't actually based in Los Angeles. Some of them were based elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But I kind of put them in, in a group because of the various connections. So if I go through the bands which I've selected, um, I think probably somebody like the Dream Syndicate, the Rain Parade and the Long Riders, they kind of pick themselves, really. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody could really argue with those selections. 
Um, a band like True West, um, again, I think they were basically came out of Davis, but they had connections to Los Angeles. And they were also a band which made it over to England in 1985. So they were, they were sort of labeled Paisley Underground mm -hmm. from that respect, really. Um, a group um, which never actually made it to the UK was the Three O'Clock. So they were slightly less well known over here. But of course, it was uh, Michael Quercio's famous quote about his audience, which he called the Paisley Underground. Mm -hmm. So obviously, the three o'clock had to be included in the book. Um, uh, one of the bands which are not in the book was, a bit, if you probably notice, it's the Bangles. Now, I would consider the Bangles to be one of the you know, key Paisley Underground bands. But the reason why they're not in the book is it because they became relatively successful quite early on. And so there was there's not that much coverage in the fanzine press that I could find. They sort of quickly led to the weekly music press. So when I was trying to select articles for the book, I couldn't find many articles by them uh, or about them. Wow. Um, I found one in a magazine called Blitz, which... Um, I tried to track down the author to get permission to use that, but I couldn't track him down. Uh, the Bangles did have a fan club here in London, which I contacted because I thought maybe I could actually carry out some original interviews with them to get their story. Um, but uh, once the, the people in the office found out I wasn't a proper journalist, they didn't really want anything to do with me. So I had to reluctantly decide that I couldn't include the Bangles. So, you know, I know obviously they're an important band in this scene, but they're not in the book, which is unfortunate. Um, perhaps the, the person who I felt was the key figure in the movement is David Roback, um, who was obviously present in the, the first lineup of the Rain Parade. But then as time went on, when he left the band, he moved through a number of different bands. So rather than have a section on each of the bands, I thought what well, I'd have a section on David Roback, where I included um, Clay Allison, Opal and Mazzy Starr. So um, that was the reason for him. There were a couple of, oh, another band which um, were originally from Tucson, but moved to Los Angeles, is Green on Red. And they came over and toured in England quite a bit in 1985. Um, they were over here about two or three times. So they were quite well known over here. So they were, had to be included in the book as well. Um, now, then it gets a bit kind of fuzzy because there were a couple of bands which I selected, which you could argue maybe against if you, um, if you were so minded. Um, I was a big fan of Wednesday Week, so I wanted to put them in the book. Um, they're perhaps not as well known as some of the other bands, but they had a, a very direct connection to Steve Wynn. So if you take the Dream Syndicate, you take Steve Wynn, you follow his early connections, you, um, you have a band called Goat Deity, which was him and the Callan sisters. So... Um, I, I mean, you know, Wednesday week made a, um, a an eight, 12 inch EP and an album on Enigma, which I really liked. So I was a fan of them. So I wanted to include them. So they're in the book. Mm -hmm. um, the band which are probably least well known of everybody in the book is, is 28th Day, um, who were from Chico, Northern right. California. Um, now I became aware of them because um, Pat Thomas had relocated to San Francisco and he was, he started a record label called Heyday Records and he put out the album which Barbara Manning from 28 Day made um, called Scissors. And he was sending me over tapes of Barbara Manning. So I was aware of Barbara Manning from Pat. Also Nigel Cross from Bucket Full of Brains. He did reviews in one of the weekly magazines called Sounds and he wrote a rave review of the 28 Day album in Sounds Magazine. So I was aware of the 28 Day album, which I, I got from um, Plastic Passion in London, sort of mm -hmm. famous record shop in London. 
and it just sort of hit me sideways it just totally blew me away I really loved that record and so I was a bit um, evangelical in terms of um, wanted to turn people onto that band I love that so um, yeah so I was a big fan of um, 28 Day and so that's the reason I wanted to um, include them in the book I love that so it sounds to me like you you um, attached yourself to the scene that you really loved and then you were looking for adjacent connections and expanding on what that scene was by mm. these various connections whether it be Steve Wynn or or what have you right so that's right yeah yeah so I mean there, there were other bands which I, I liked which were vaguely connected which um, didn't make the book um, there was Game Theory for example from up in Sacramento um, who I, I really liked, but I thought, I didn't think they were quite the style um, that most of the other bands, they, were, they weren't sort of a guitar band, for one thing. And although Scott Miller is, I thought he was a massive talent, um, he was a bit of a, a kind of a, a quirky songwriter, and they had this keyboard sound in game theory, so I, they didn't really fit what I thought was the archetypal uh, Paisley Underground Band. Okay. There was also a band um, which came from two songs called Naked Prey, who were a guitar band, and they were linked to Green or Red. So, um, Van Christian was um, in an early incarnation of uh, Green or Red, I think. So, again, so you take Green or Red, you could follow them through to Naked Prey, but I'm afraid they they didn't make the book either. <laughs> so you you pick these different bands that were connected to the scene or that you wanted to uh, promote or evangelize. I love using that word for in, in association with 28th day. So your thought was you were going to compile all these. How did you go about um, getting all these articles, um, getting um, approval to use it? How, how did you compile all this to put together in this one book? Well, um, I had, as a basis for the book, I had Bucket Full of Brains. Um, so that phone formed the backbone of the book, really, because um, I really loved Nigel Cross as a writer. I thought he was the, prob he's probably my second favorite writer of all time. There's a guy called Pete Frame in England who did a magazine called Zigzag in the late 60s and 70s, who's probably my favorite writer, but Nigel sort of runs him a close second, I think. Nice. So I wanted to put his writing in the book. There was also a magazine from the USA called The Bob, which uh, you're probably familiar with, which is yeah. in kind of newspaper format. Yes. So that yeah. had a lot of um, articles on the uh, Paisley Underground that I wanted to use. So they were the two main magazines. But I also had um, less well-known magazines. Um, my friend Paul Ricketts, who I mentioned earlier, He'd started a magazine called Unhinged. I don't know if you've ever seen that magazine. I'm not familiar with that. It was sort of kind of running from the late 80s through, through the 90s. Okay. And it was, it was a really good magazine, but it was quite eclectic. It would have the Paisley Underground bands in, but it might have an article on John Fay, or it might have an article on a science, obscure science fiction author. So it was very varied, but it was, there was you know, good stuff in there. And what happened was um, because he was doing the magazine, he made some connections with various people. For example, Barbara Manning from 28 Day, um, she came over to Europe in 1992. She was doing a tour of Germany with her sister, Terry. They were playing over in Germany, but they came over before that to England and had a bit of a holiday. So, um, I had the uh, the privilege of hosting Barbara Manning in my house, playing a gig for me. So that was uh, wow. You know, having Mike wow. in my uh, front room playing for me, that was great. That's amazing. So, and what Paul had done, he uh, just before she came over, he had um, written, or he had interviewed her in effect. But um, it, he was corresponding with Barbara. Now, what was happening was Barbara was writing him letters. Now, I think she thought she was writing him a letter as a friend, whereas Paul thought he was interviewing her. So what he did is he took the letter and he printed it in the magazine 
And I think Barb was kind of a bit surprised to see it in the magazine. So, because it was quite confessional oh. and it's quite uh, visceral, quite raw. If you, if you read the, it's, I've reprinted it in the book. Right. So um, I thought that was kind of the definitive um, story from Barbara on 28 days. So right. I was happy that I had that angle covered. But, um, and also because Barbara had had a solo album out, she'd done various other interviews, which could have been, could be extracted. But um, the other two members of the band, Cole Markey and Mike Clower, there wasn't really anything uh, that I could use from them. So um, on a visit to San Francisco in 1992, I was there in the autumn in 92. So I decided to track down Michael and Cole and interview them. Uh, it so happened that at the time, Cole was actually living in San Francisco and he was actually only a couple of blocks from where I was staying. So sort of one afternoon, I wandered around his place with the tape recorder and I interviewed him to get his story, which um, I put in the book. And the same week, um, I interviewed Michael Cloud. Now, to get to him, I had to go up to Chico, which um, in, um, if you... Um, look at a map of the USA, Chico is quite close to San Francisco, but if you take a bus, it takes nearly all day to get up there. <laughs> yeah. So I had, to, I had to do an overnight trip, so I stayed with Michael overnight and then um, again interviewed him to get his side of the story, put that in the book, so had a good time with him. He was um, getting me into bad habits like drinking cocktails in the morning, which uh, I don't <laughs> do. So that was um, how I got their side of the story. And um, as you know, the book is primarily a compilation of other people's work. But because I wanted uh, to get 28th day in there, I thought, well, you know, if I'm doing the book, I ought to write something in the book. So I decided to put my interviews uh, with 28th day in the book. And I also did the introduction to the band as well. Um, if you notice what I've done is, um, as well as compiling these archive articles, I got various people to do introductions to the band. So I selected people who I thought were particularly good at talking about certain bands. So for example, Pat Thomas did Dream Syndicate because he's probably the world's leading authority on Dream Syndicate, even bigger one than Steve Wynn maybe. Absolutely. Um, Nigel Cross, who was associated with Rain Parade, I got him to do the Rain Parade introduction at because by that time he was a friend of mine. Um, Paul Ricketts, who put Wednesday Week in his magazine, I got him to do the Wednesday Week um, intro. There was a guy called Rick Gershon who was associated with the Long Riders. I can't remember exactly what his role was, but he was a friend of theirs. So he did the intro for the Long Riders. Oh. Um, who else was there? Fred Mills was a guy who did a lot of writing on Green on Red. So I got him to do Green on Red. Um, and the rowback section, um, I got my friend Steve Lines to do that because uh, he was a very big fan of David Roback, like myself. And I, you know, I thought he knew what he was talking about when it came to David Roback. So he did the intro for that band. So um, that's where the selections came from. And uh, so that's how it all, all came together. So what I needed to do was to actually track down these people and get their permission. So I thought I needed, obviously I needed the permission of the authors of the articles, but I also wanted to make sure I had the permission of the people who owned the magazines. Mm -hmm. so I was kind of covered from that point of view. So um, when I was putting this book together, it was kind of pre-social media, although the internet was there and you had email, there wasn't any Facebook, so it was quite difficult to track people down. So the people, some of the people, uh, Pat Thomas helped me find. So I, I managed um, over the course of, well, quite a period to get in touch with these people and get their permission to use the articles. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so that was, um, all the material was gathered. So then I had to actually find a way of putting it all together. Um, what I tried at first was to try and scan these articles and then put them into my computer. But um, 
what I found with that was that the software wasn't working very well. Um, it was generating errors. So I had to go through and do a lot of corrections. Oh boy. So I thought, well, the easiest thing is to just actually type it. So I had to ha hand type everything from the magazines into my computer. So, you know, it's quite a, quite a big book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, but I'm a person who's always used to uh, used to getting up quite early in the morning. So what I used to do was get up early and I'd spend maybe um, an hour or so typing up articles before I went to work. So I got all the stuff on my computer and put it into these various sections. And I was um, ready to go at one point. I should say that um, because I wanted to commission these new introductions that did introduce a certain amount of delay into the, the project right. because I was waiting on people to provide them. Um, I should also say that um, I wanted to use um, articles from fan magazines from people who were kind of passionate about the music. Um, and also because I was having to shell out money to produce a book, I didn't really want to pay people for their contributions. Mm. Um, I thought, well, if if they were they, they're music fans, they're not really worried about getting paid anyway because they wouldn't have been paid for the original articles. So why should they worry about getting paid to have them reprinted? So right. that was my opinion anyway. And everybody seemed quite happy to um, let me print their stuff. Um, there's some articles in there from the later issues of Bucketful of Brains. And by that time, the editor of the magazine was a guy called John Story. And again, he was happy to give me permission to reprint the articles. So everything in the book is kind of reprinted for, by permission of the, um, the people who contributed them. Um, I thought that I'd introduce a few um, photographs in the book um, just to have a picture of each band. There's only one picture of each band. So it's sort of fairly minimal in terms of um, photographs, but um, I thought it'd be a good idea to have those. The only person I couldn't really find uh, any suitable photographs was with David Roback. But I knew that um, a woman called Laura Levine had taken some pictures of uh, Opal and Clay Allison. So um, I contacted her and asked her if I could use her pictures. Now she was, um, she's actually a professional photographer. So she said, um, well, do you want to send me a contract for it? And I said, well, I don't really want to do that. They, you know, there's no, no money in it. But uh, she kindly let, let me use one of her pictures um, if I sent her a couple of copies of the book. So that, that kind of worked out okay. That's nice. So um, when I had all the material ready, oh, I should also say that um, perhaps the biggest cause of delay was... Uh, I was waiting for the intro from Paul on Wednesday week. Now, Paul has got many virtues, but one of his characteristics is he's got a very relaxed attitude to deadlines. <laughs> so it, it took him forever to get this article to me. So that did introduce um, a bit of delay. So, so this, this process actually went on, you know, it's probably a number of years putting this, all this stuff together. Yeah, I was going to ask that from the time that you had this thought to put this book together till the time that it was printed how long are we talking in terms of well it was I I was kind of mulling the, the concept over in the 90s really and the book was printed in 2006 so the actual book production of the book probably was spread over something like three years okay so it did take a while so then having got all the material I had to decide how I was going to actually get it printed now, nowadays, you can just upload stuff to Amazon and they'll do all the printing for you. And uh, I think at the, back in 2006, you could do print-on-demand books, but um, I didn't really want to do that because you can always kind of tell if a book's a print-on-demand book. Sure. I wanted it to look like a proper printed book, as it were. Um, so it so happened that my cousin, her partner, ran a small print business and he printed things like parish magazines and catalogues for stores, things like that. But he could actually print the book for me. So he was the one who did it. And I was uh, quite happy with the, the way it turned out. I thought he did a pretty good job. I agree. I so agree. that's how the book um, 
came to be, really. I mean, it's really impressive uh, being able to cull together all these articles, you know, articles that perhaps uh, some fans, perhaps that came to, came to know of the scene later, simply wouldn't have gotten their hands on, you know. That's right, yeah. Time, I mean, but now we've yeah. got it all in one place, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's unlikely that um, many people would have everything in the book. Obviously, some people would have Bucket Full of Brains and the Bob. They'd have all those articles. Right. Um, but, you know, there was kind of more obscure things. For example, um, Nigel Cross did an article on a band called Going Home, which was Hope Sandoval's band mm -hmm. um, originally. And they recorded an album which David Roback produced. And the only article I could find on them was in a German magazine called Heartbeat, which um, Nigel did for them. So that article is in the book, you know. Yeah, so yeah. it's probably a couple of things which most people ha hadn't seen before. And I, I definitely think that's what makes the book unique, is that you've given, uh, you've given fans things that are hard, hard to find on your own, and you kind of made it very... Let me put it this way, as a fan who has a copy, it seems very easily done. And now listening to the process and the timeline, um, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I I'm appreciate it. And uh, I'm curious, the books out, you released the book in 2006 and what's the reaction that you receive? Are you, uh, how is the book received? Well, um... I, perhaps I should say, first of all, um, it, the economics of the book. I wanted to obviously spend a lot of time on the book, but I wanted to actually spend some money on it, but get the money back. I didn't really want to be paying for the book out of my own pocket. So I wanted, I wanted to cover my costs. So the book actually cost me £3,000 to have printed. So obviously when you get presented with 500 books, you need to pay pay up front so that was three grand gone out my pocket right decide how what price I should uh, sell the book for and I had to kind of I didn't want to price it out of the market so I had to pitch it at a reasonable level so bearing in mind that each book cost me six pounds to produce I thought 12 pounds cover price was kind of a reasonable price to charge for it which is fair enough, but that's £12 to the end consumer. Right. If I'm paying £6 and charging 12 that means I can't really go through any distributors because there's basically no margin in it for them. Or if there is a margin in it for them, I'm losing money on it. Right. So um, I couldn't distribute it by any third party. So the big drawback is that it's not available in shops. So if somebody read a review of it and they thought, oh, I'll go into my local bookshop and I'll pick it up. You can't find it in your, your local bookshop. Right. The only place that you'll find it was there was a few um, specialist outlet that, uh, outlets which took copies of the book. But I had to sell them myself, basically, by mail order or, or on eBay. So that was a way um, that it actually got out into the the wild world really so in terms of the reaction to it um you know there were some good reviews a lot of people really liked it who were into the paisley underground what i found a little surprising was there were some people who i knew liked the paisley underground they were into the music but they seemed to be quite happy to live without the book so from that i learned that not everybody is like me not everybody needs to dig deep into these things. So, um, it, you know, it was, it was quite difficult to shift copies because of the that business model, which I've outlined. Um, so in 2006, I had um, 500 copies of the book. So to date, I've probably given away about 100 copies. What I decided to do was to give, all the contributors had a free copy and all the band members could have a free copy. Now, some of the bands I was in direct contact or indirect contact with, so I knew where to send their copies. Other band members, I didn't know where they were, so I couldn't send them a copy. 
Um, a couple of them got in touch with me saying, can I buy a copy of the book? And I said, well, you know, you're in the band, I'll send you a free book. So there's, and also my friends got free copies as well. So I probably gave away about a hundred books with review copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to date, I probably sold about 350. So I, that means I probably just about made my money back or maybe a bit more. And I've got about 50 copies still left in my uh, in my wardrobe. All well, right. You, you have one but, less from from. I know. <laughs> we both have our own, but yeah, yeah. So I uh, wanna, oh, go ahead, Sreya. I just wanted to know, um, just really quickly, knowing that there's about 50 copies, what if people want, if our listeners would like a copy, what's the best avenue to contact you? They can, if they look on eBay and they search for either Tell Me When It's Over or Paisley Underground Book, they'll find it on there. Or they can find me on Facebook directly, Clive Jones, look for me on Facebook. We probably have mutual friends if you're listening to this podcast. Yes, absolutely. They can get in touch with me that way. Perfect. Yeah, I just wanted to share my personal story. Um, it was about three years ago that one of my friends, Tori Troutman, who's one of my good friends and a bandmate of mine, he sent me this copy from Oklahoma. And he said, Jeff, you have to read this. So I spent my lunch breaks for the next week and a half just devouring the book. So I, I actually loved it. And I said, thank you for the gift, Tori. He's like, oh, no, it's not a gift. You need to send it back. But I wanted you to read it. <laughs> Only last month, I finally reached out to you, Clive, and you were uh, to send me a copy and um i don't know if you're willing to do this to our listeners but if any listeners want to order it through through ebay from clive i asked clive to actually sign my copy so um yeah no problem (laughs) yeah so maybe that's something that you could do for our listeners so i learned at the beginning of the hour that you are not the author of all these british history books that i found is this the only book that you've put together or have you put together it's the only book it's the only book i've put together okay great great i mean yeah i mean i'm glad you um enjoyed the book there's basically two reactions that i i want to generate from the book one is one is oh i really loved it thank you for doing it which is kind of the reaction i got from yours and the other is this book is an outrage. This person doesn't know what he's talking about. I must do my own book and I'll tell the real story, which would mean that there'd be another page for the underground book out there, which I could buy, read and enjoy. <laughs> well, to date. This is it. That's this. I think that's it. There was actually, a, there's a guy called Carlos or Carlo in Spain who's written a book in Spanish which covers this scene, but it's a bit wider than that. Yes, I yeah. know exactly the book you're talking about. I thought I had it here. You have yeah. it, yeah. Uh, yeah. And his definition is a little different. It's a little a lot broader than mine, yeah. And I will say, um, the detail and especially, you know, um, the section uh, connected to and through David Roback. Uh, no, uh, his book is a little different than that. Sorry, I, I had a question for you. I know we're interviewing Clive here, but um, if I look at the side of mine, it looks pretty smooth. You've got things sticking out of your version. Look, uh, Clive, you need to understand one, uh, I teach for a living. And so when I read things, I mark things and I make notes to myself. The books become a part of me. So yes. It looks like like a proper textbook. (laughs) That's simply the way I read. And so, you know, I highlighted things. I make notes to myself as a margin. I'm just one of those kind of readers. Uh, Yeah, you never, like your friend Jeff asked you, send it back. Your friend would hate me after (laughs) I went to the book. Yeah, it's good to see extra copy oh excellent excellent so clive is there anything that you're working on now or anything that you wanted to share with our listeners um there's probably nothing right now but i could tell you about some of the other things i've been involved with um i've talked about my friend steve lines who lives locally um he has a band called storm clouds who i'm a, a big fan of which is basically him and a female singer 
Um, so we, we formed a record label to put out his music primarily. And so we put out a couple of uh, albums by him. This album here called Nightmares in the Sky, which is out on vinyl and CD. Storm. And second, second album by Storm Clowns is called Sleep No More, again on vinyl and CD. Um, so that was uh, quite an interesting project. That was back in the 90s we did those, or maybe early 2000s. Again, what was the, the label? Called Rainfall Records is the label. Okay. Um, and it's called Storm Clouds. Um, a little after that, I put out a couple of albums uh, with Pat Thomas, whereas um, I was kind of uh, supplying the finance and Pat was doing the, the work for them. So I put out this record, um, record by The Rain Parade, oh, which yes. is called Perfume River. Are you familiar with that album? Yes, yes we okay. are. So that's on my label, Rainfall Records, the label I run with Steve. That's getting quite rare now, not many of those around. Yes, indeed. And uh, the sort of project after that was this album by Barbara Manning called Super Scissors. Do you know that record? No, I'm not familiar with Super Scissors. Right, so what this is, it's the, this is a three CD box set. It's got the Late the I Keep Scissors album. It's got the One Perfect Green Blanket album, which has got a bunch of extra tracks on that CD. And then CD number three is all unreleased material from the, the era of scissors. So that's why it's called Super Scissors. Excellent. It's got a nice little booklet in it. And it's got uh, three separate CDs with separate covers in the box. Lovely. So yeah, quite a nice little artifact. And again, that can be purchased through Rainfall Records. Um, there's actually not, there's probably not many, there's not many of those left now. So you can probably find it on Discogs and maybe eBay. So um, particularly people in the USA, it's probably easiest to look for those on Discogs, I would imagine. Okay. That's where, that's where I'm heading right now. Thank you, uh, Jeff. I'm going to beat you to it because that looks, that looks spectacular. Yes, it does. And that third CD, I'm super curious. Yes. Very, very curious. Yeah, it's some great, great stuff on there. Yeah, a, a very amusing interview with Barbara is uh, the the bonus track on the Scissors CD. She did a very amusing interview on KZSU Radio. Yeah, we're big fans of Barbara. We had her on recently, and she was a blast. I yes, I listened to your uh, Twenty Eight Day special. I found it very interesting. Yeah, there. So it's it was excellent. You managed to get all three of them together. That was all Barbara. Yeah, we reached out to Barbara and she managed to pull the whole yeah. the whole band together. So yeah, yeah, I managed to get over there for a reunion. About I think it was two thousand and four. They played um, two reunion shows, one in San Francisco and one up in Chico, and so I managed to come over over for those. So that was a great thrill to see that band. Wow! And how did they sound as a reunited band? They sounded absolutely great. Yeah. Yeah, they did all the old classics. Nice. See, Clive's my kind of fan. Yes. Right? Yes. Because Clive not only listens to the music, follows the band, but also is very proactive in getting them to speak. I like it. I like it, Clive. My kind of fan. Yes. So from one music fan to another music fan, Clive, we really wanted to thank you for taking time. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, it was very eye-opening on, on how you put this together and the bands that you chose. I always wondered about that, how, how you came to choose the bands that you did. And listening to you today, it, it makes perfect sense. And having that geographical distance of being so far away from Los Angeles I was just curious how all this came together in a time when you can't um, Google things as easily as we can today. And as Soraya mentioned, it's really nice as a fan to have all these compiled together in, in one thing that I can hold in one hand. So yeah, I yeah. really appreciate that. And I appreciate your time today, Clive. Okay, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Take care. Yeah. And have a good evening. Yes. Thank you. Soraya, let's go get lunch. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. I really appreciate it. So Soraya, now we have a little bit more understanding of how this came together.
Okay. So, yes, now I understand the, the why, okay? Because he said it. That for him, you know, because I think when I read the book, I said, why is there so much uh, Clay Allison, Opal, Going Home, Massey Star? That was a section that I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And, but he said for him, David Roback was a key person to this movement, to, to this scene. And I go, okay, now I understand why you include it. And then the fact that he's able to put something in there that's really quite rare about going home. Now, I wanna read one, one thing, just one little thing. And this is where um, I was coming into this from. So this is from the foreword that Pat Thomas writes to the book. Okay. And uh, bu -bu 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 -bu. he says, um, Clive and I share, uh, this is about, it's still open to debate who exactly the Paisley Underground bands were. Basically, Clive and I share what I would call a quote, bucket full of brains and quote view which really was the premier source of information for this sound. Even though the music was, parentheses, open parentheses, mostly in parentheses, based in Los Angeles and the magazine was published in London. Okay, so think about that geographic distance, right? For those of us living in the 80s on the East Coast, me, or in the UK, Clive, we saw the scope of bands a little wider than someone living in LA. And I think this is really the key difference. We've spoken to all, you know, almost uh, or as many of the band members as we can from these seminal four Paisley Underground bands that you and I define as the, the, the four. Bangles, Three O'Clock, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade. Okay, Sid Griffin even backs us up in John Doe's book. Yes, thank you, represent. But the further away you get from Los Angeles, this is where things change. And, and I think Pat Thomas makes a really interesting argument about that. And I can't say that I disagree. So, but he continues. Uh, Those people lucky enough to be in LA back then probably wouldn't include True West. Okay, and you and I have talked about this. Uh, they were from Northern California, but had strong ties to the Dream Syndicate. But every fan and nearly every journalist living outside of California probably would. So I think you and I have a unique perspective because, you know, we're Southern California people and we see it one way. We see it in the way that Danny Benair and everybody else kind of sees it. But then the minute you walk out, people start to, they have a little more perspective. And I think like you and I have talked about it and, and you know, we've seen in online forums like, no, the Paisley Underground is four bands. That's it. Nobody else. And I used to get so riled up when people would include people that I thought, I thought, me, Soraya Alandari thought, simply just weren't a part of this scene. And I, you know, because I keep thinking about Danny Benair. Danny Benair said, there are four bands that were part of this scene. You know them, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade, uh, Three O'Clock Bangles. And I would get so angry when people in Europe would say, no, Opal's a part of it. No, they're not. And I remember thinking, why? It's so crazy. But I think Pat and Clive have really kind of presented, we see it a little differently and this is why. And for Clive, he sees a lot of connections because what you and I term as going down the rabbit hole Clive sees as merely like, you know, they're bridges to other bands. And I thought that was just an interesting perspective hearing him say it. Yes. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was somebody made the argument that REM was part of it. And I remember, no, but look, Pat says something about it too. Pat Thomas says in the foreword, he goes, uh, so he mentions how Clive sees it one way, he sees it another. Some things Clive included, he wouldn't have included, but I think Clive argued that there are certain connections 
to certain uh, to people in the seminal bands that led to him including these. So, and then Pat adds this perfect line. This is why Pat Thomas nailed it. And despite what Mojo Magazine wrote a few years ago, REM was never a Paisley Underground band, exclamation point. And he adds, although they did share wine, women, and song with many from the Paisley Underground Collective. But then I think Clive made a really interesting point when he said, you know, I put out this book and some people that I knew were fans simply weren't interested. They wanted nothing. They did not want a book. And uh, so Pat Thomas adds this one line, he says, as Ricky Nelson sang, quote, you can't please everyone, so you've got to please yourself, end quote. This book is Clive's personal pick of bands with a bit of my input. So I now get it. I now have a, I have clarity, right, on Clive's view. And, um, but I still think and I mean, hats off to this guy for transcribing so many articles. I can't even imagine. Um, but if you're a fan of Paisley Underground bands, what he's done is he's given us access to, to articles that um, a while ago would have been hard to kind of dig up. And he's put them all in one place. Yep, yep. You so know? Yeah. I wanted to reiterate, as you said and he said, so the book is primarily just a collection of previously written articles, not so much where he set out and authored a bunch right. of books. There was some, some of that is included, but primarily a collection of previously. Can you, can you uh, hold on one second? Because I want to show you the book that he was talking about. Oh yeah, okay. I was very curious about that, especially when he said that it was written in Spanish. So um, I used to I have that. it here on my desk. Oh, but I've been reading it, so it's on my nightstand. Oh, wow. Okay, so the name of the author is Carlos Rego, and I already have a problem with the title because they call it they call it Nuevo Rock Americano Año 80. So they're saying the new American rock of the 80s, of the 80s, Luces y Sombras de un Espejismo. Lights, it's like lights and shadows of a reflection. Okay, but but listen to the bands that he puts in here, okay? Rain Parade, Green on Red. I'm on board. Dream Syndicate. On board. Long Riders. Still on board. Violent Fence. Wait, what? what? Los Lobos. The Dell Lords. Jason and the Scorchers. Giant Sand. R.E.M. Okay, so Carlos had me. He's got me in some places. So it, Carlos, Carlos's argument is a little different. And look, I just yeah also uh, mentions other bands. You know, there's our friend, the one and only Michael Curcio, with a guitar, not a bass, a six-string guitar. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, this is a, he makes a very different argument. Uh, uh, not like different, different, but he approaches it in a different way. And it just goes to show you, it's all a question of perspective. Yep. And, um, and what are the links, right? Yeah. So yeah, me and Carlos don't see things completely eye to eye. And I, rem I saw the mention of this book in one of the online uh pages on facebook something paisley underground related and i said okay i gotta read this book and so i ordered it and it was sitting for a while until i was done with the semester and so i've been starting to read it interesting but, um, i brought that up so yeah and, and bef so. before we sign off i did want to um bring up clive's point when we were asking about the reaction to it and he said i am looking for two reactions one, I love the book and thank you. And two, this was terrible. I'm going to get it right and write my own book. So for any of you out there that have issues with this book, please put pen to paper and write one that's better. 
I can't do it. <laughs> so, but uh, look, yeah, look, it, the fact that he's found these articles, put them together, and given it to us—that's that's a plus. Do we need a something that that digs deeper? Sure. Uh, how many times? Who have we talked to? We've talked to Danny Benair. We've talked to Lena Litonma. We've talked to Michael Corchio. We've talked with Steve Wynn. We've talked with Matt Pucci, with Stephen Roback. Uh, I don't know, Jeff. Do we need to write a book? <laughs> Are we authors or podcasters? I think oh. we're podcasters. We're fans. I'm not a musician. You are. And, but, but, you know, one of the things that I find really interesting is this is a topic that that is still of interest, right? Look at us. We're sitting here, what, a year and change after sitting down to just talk about music we like. And what we're finding is there's a lot of layers here that simply haven't been uncovered or maybe, you know, people haven't taken the time to do it. I don't know. But Clive's point, I think it's really well taken. Hey, got an issue? Figure it out and write something else and let me sit and read it. Love that. I'm, I'm down. Yeah. So, so, you know, I've, I've, I don't want to say pestered, but I've mentioned repeatedly to Lena Litonla. I think we're ready for her book. I certainly <laughs> Anybody else that has inside info and kind of lived the tale, we're ready for your book. Yeah, and until that book comes out, if you want to go to eBay, look for, tell me when it's over. There are only 50 copies left. No, You want this in your, yep. you're not and gonna go dig in the archives, bucket yep. full of brain, the Bob, Blitz, I was just writing down, you know, magazines. I'm like, okay, zigzag, unhinged. Right. Yep. And, it, and if you are, let us know because we want to read your book. And we yeah. want and we want scanned copies of all the articles. <laughs> yes. And if you buy it on eBay, you're buying it directly from Clive. Um, if you're interested, like I did, ask him to sign it. And he said he'd be willing to sign it if that if you're into such things. But um eBay. Tell me when it's over. Notes from the Paisley Underground. Edited by Clive Jones. Um, if you're into the scene as we are and you're listening to our podcast, you probably are. I think it's worth checking it's out. Read. It's honestly worth a read. And the bands covered are Dream Syndicate, Three O'Clock, True West, Long Riders, Green on Red, Wednesday Week, 28th Day, Rain Parade, and then that one last section that I always had an issue with. <laughs> Play Allison, Opal, Going Home, and Massive Star. Yep. And a bunch of articles, you know, it's it's worth your time. Agreed. Agreed. Clive, and then you, so you can tell us your opinion after. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. All right, mi gente. Agroviar. Move on, Paisley people. This book is an outrage. This person doesn't know what he's talking about. I must do my own book and I'll tell the real story. <laughs>